Hello and welcome to Page Parlay. This is the show where we speak to the authors whose work we read on scintillating stories. Today we're speaking to Ridian Jones about his historical fantasy short story, Centaur Procession. Thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Clearly, people didn't absolutely hate what I wrote before, so that's always nice. <laughs> <laughs> ah, validation! <laughs> <laughs> or at least not being told, get out. <laughs> <laughs> so, in case people uh, haven't heard your previous interview um, or haven't listened to the episode Dressing Station, which was uh, the, one of your other stories that we've read for the podcast, can you, can you tell us a little yes. bit about the kind of thing you like to write? I mostly write sort of fantasy fiction in the vein of uh, Tolkien, Jordan, uh, Robert Jordan, uh, George R. R. Martin, that sort of fantasy world style. I mainly just write for my own pleasure. I don't write very often, um, but it's the kind of thing that I enjoy reading, so I write it because that's what I enjoy reading, Mm -hmm. pretty much. Let's uh, call it quality over quantity. I'd like to think so. (laughs) (laughs) This story is very Byzantine in your approach. So what kind of research went into the the writing of this uh, this little segment? It is meant to be part of something much, much bigger. Mm. Um, and Dressing Station Story is actually, uh, it's actually written in the same world. Uh, mm. It's actually on a different continent. Um, within that world, there are several different species. Um, the centaurs being one of them, the avians being yet another. There, there's a couple of others as well. Each of the different cultures in that world, I have actually used real world cultures as my inspiration for them, as my starting point of, okay, I need to build a society from the ground up. Mm. Let's look at another society and see how they did it. Centaur, <laughs> um, I looked to the Byzantine Empire uh, for the inspiration behind them, mm-hmm. partly because I have an interest in Byzantine history. I, I find the medieval cultures that don't really get talked about quite interesting. So people like the Byzantines and in earlier medieval period, I'm really, really interested in Pictish history and culture, not that that's made it into a story at this stage. The word itself, Byzantine, is not great um, in a lot of respects. They never called themselves that. They called themselves Romans. Mm -hmm. They were the continuation of the Roman Empire as far as they were concerned. If you said, hey, you're a Byzantine, they'd turn around and go, what are you talking about? (laughs) We use it to differentiate the later eastern medieval roman empire from what everybody thinks of as romans rome claudius caesar and and all that it reminds me of i claudius i would definitely recommend it it features brian blessed without a beard like literally he came on and um and i remember i was watching it with a friend and my friend said oh look there's brian blessed and i genuinely said where <laughs> in i claudius there's a lot of uh talk it's it's, it's obviously pre um pre-byzantine but it still has that very roman way of dealing with power grabs the way this empress hypernia is dealing with her takeover is it really does ring true to me of a roman way of doing things roman and byzantine politics they played rough, they played for keeps. Yeah. Um, 
pre-Constantine, it's not Christian, it's a pagan empire. Mm. Um, there were a couple of, of pagan emperors after Constantine, but generally they're Christian. Pre-Constantine empire, they would just, ah, I've won. Right, now you die. Uh, <laughs> solved. Mad things happen. Like at one point, the Praetorian Guard literally auctions the empire off to the highest bidder. Oh, fantastic. It's it, 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 like genuinely, they had a guy on the wall of their compound. They had one guy outside who was shouting his bid and a guy inside and the guy on the wall's just ferrying between the two of them going, do I have any advance <laughs> on X? It's, it's mental. In the Byzantine Empire... They still played rough and they still played for keeps, but you were a lot less likely to murder your, the person you deposed simply on the basis of their, they are a Christian empire. It didn't read well in the publicity. The way they dealt with it to us now seems horrific and brutal and awful. But to their way of thinking is actually kind of merciful. So deposed emperors could be expected to be blinded, castrated and packed off to a monastery. Okay. Which to us is like, oh God, that's appalling. Yeah. But to them, they're going, no, no, if I murder you, you don't have a chance to repent of your sins. You can't get into heaven. Whereas if I do this, yeah, it's pretty crap, but you can still get into heaven. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's a very interesting way of thinking. It's totally logical, but to us, we're just kind of going, what? I'd rather oh, have God. my genitals if you don't mind. I will <laughs> I happily like... go to hell, genitals in hand. Thank you. <laughs> 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 or at least not have to learn to read Braille rather than <laughs> being able to, yeah. But, I mean, that that's the way they approached it. One of the primary inspiration behind the main character, Herenia, is actually the first Roman Byzantine empress to rule in her own right. Her story is absolutely fantastic. She's a really fascinating individual. Uh, she's also one of the main inspirations behind Cersei Lannister. Ooh. The Empress Irene, who, and I'm, ve this is very, very rough two-sentence history, mm -hmm. but she married into the imperial family. Her husband died in dubious circumstances. I don't think it was a, quote, hunting accident, <laughs> but it might as well have been. She was then her son's regent because he was too young. Mm -hmm. A son, when he came of age, turned around and said, I would quite like to rule my empire now. <laughs> so she started a civil war to stay in control. <laughs> Won the civil war, had her own son blinded, oh my and God. then ruled in her own right. <laughs> what? <laughs> Lady, chill. <laughs> yeah, for an encore, she also sent a letter to Charlemagne, Ooh. who by this point had been crowned Holy Roman Emperor in the West, mm. Uh, basically saying, hey, if we get married, we can put the empire back together again. <laughs> he turned it down. <laughs> he was quite devoted to his to his wife, wasn't yes. he? Yes, apparently he was absolutely devoted to, her, what, to his wife, although it was actually his second wife. Aww. The first one was a bit of a trial run. <laughs> <laughs> that is one of the... The yeah. best pickup lines. Hey, hey, big boy, do you want to merge empires? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was one of Herenia's inspirations. Has she taken on a life of her own in, in your own head, in the story? If you've ever scratched the surface about of Rome or um, pre-Roman Greece, my 
God, they were misogynistic. Mm. Um, there are bits where it's like, and I'm going to remove that and or tone it down a lot. <laughs> um, however, she is still very much a woman playing in male politics where women aren't welcome. Um, so the, the thing that's so fascinating about Irene, she's referred to the first person to rule as Empress in her own right, but her actual title wasn't Empress, it was Emperor. That's a clever oh, move, yeah. Herenia, she's making a power move where she's effectively saying, for the time being at least, I'm not ruling this as Emperor or em- Empress I'm ruling this on behalf of my husband. It's a very clever move. It it also reminds me a little of Margaret of Anjou. There's a level of internal contempt, which (laughs) he doesn't necessarily show on the outside, which I think is very, it speaks of massive political movement, if you know what I mean, that she is, she just thinks of him as this gibbering ape. But then to everyone else, she she speaks very eloquently. She she wants him to get better. She wants to maintain the empire for the, out of love for him and love for the love for her children. She calls them, but yeah, inside you can see all these wheels turning and these clever machinations. It's very interesting. She's making use of her the symbols of her husband's power, mm-hmm. but not saying they're hers because at that point she's stepping out of a role that her society wants her to be in into one that it doesn't allow her to occupy at that point yeah at that point the knives come out and i mean i have there are elements of this story and their culture where i've actually drawn from later ottoman culture uh the reference to silk cords around their neck yeah that's that's straight up lifted from ottoman uh or middle ottoman culture where basically the sultan's um firstborn son he gets the throne he then has all of his brothers strangled to prevent them making power plays they inherited a lot of the tri- the, the structures and and uh, especially the especially the Hagia sophia which i yes. i imagine is what the great uh, the great temple in this story is based on it is very much so however um i have actually been to istanbul uh, or as the Byzantines knew it, Constantinople. I actually wrote this before I'd been there. Wow! The place that this story is set, it's based on a real place that I had never been to, but have now yeah. since writing this. One thing I did want to try and convey in this story is the sense of, no, no, this city might go off at any minute. It, it's it, oh, definitely. One wrong move by either side, and there's going to be blood in the streets. Riots were very much a part of Roman and Byzantine politics. Uh-huh. Um Whenever there's a non-peaceful transfer of power between emperors, the riots could be spectacular. The Roman elites basically lived in fear of the mob. Bread and circuses keep them happy because when they're not happy, it's going to be blood up the walls and probably ours as Mm -hmm. Nika demonstrate when they pulled the emperor out into the circus and literally pulled him apart. Oh, In yeah. Herenia and Bathus, they're having a power struggle between them. Uh, they're trying to decide whose family sits on the throne, but they're trying not to let that spill out. And her processing through the city like this, yes, it's a power place. She's wearing the trappings of power, showing I'm in control. Mm-hmm. 
but it's also a massive risk if it goes wrong. Because mm. uh, I think at one point it, she talks about just hoping that nobody chucks a cobblestone. Speaking of uh, the guard, uh, could you tell us a bit more about your thoughts behind them? Because their description, again, is a very interesting, almost visceral part of this story where you are under no illusion that these that these guys are anything but absolute tanks on legs, if you know what I mean. So the way that I kind of conceived of centaurs waging war is I first kind of looked at it and gone, okay, I'm going to look at this from a practical standpoint of how have I physically designed them to be? What's, yes. what's their anatomy? How do the body mechanics work? Because they're wildly different to ours. Mm-hmm. From my own experience of um, Western medieval martial arts Mm -hmm. and looking at history, how would I use these tools? Mm -hmm. Cavalry, fundamentally, the problem that you can have with cavalry in our world is a horse is a prey animal. Unless you train it, it wants to run away. It's going, no human, this place is scary and there are sharp objects. I don't want to be here. (laughs) Horses, getting them to march in step is very, very difficult. If that horse body has a human body attached and is sentient, that's no longer an issue. In terms of the armor they wear, you're going to want to protect the horse body much, much more Mm -hmm. uh, than as with most human cavalry throughout history. And again, looking at the Byzantines, looking at medieval Greek culture, how did they do it? cataphracts which Mm -hmm. they are not the same as a medieval knight um the medieval knight that we in the west think of he he's a highly trained warrior he is exceptional at what he does but he's much more of a warrior than a soldier he's a lord who has men under him he's it's not his job well it is his job to go out onto a battlefield but it's not his only job an imperial byzantine cataphract he was not necessarily nobility each area of land that is worth x amount must provide one cavalryman with his equipment they are a a trained soldier this is literally what they do for a living Mm -hmm. and the cataphract toy in this story they're the same in terms of how they actually function on a battlefield it's the classic mass cavalry charge but it's a lot easier to organize and to do because you're not having to deal with two brains making up one element of a larger unit. The centaur is in control of his own body. He doesn't have to deal with a horse all the time. Physiologically, the way I'd conceived of the difference between a male centaur and a female centaur is that a female centaur is much closer to uh, what we've would now think of as say like a racehorse something like that Mm, smaller faster sort of classic arabian style horse Mm -hmm. male centaurs in terms of i mean we are talking averages there's going to be persons who are outside the norms just as in our world so there'll be smaller Um, men and bigger women and vice versa yeah exactly but the male centaurs they're the size of a shire horse they're basically big moving slabs of muscle they may not be able to go as fast but that all that muscle mass has momentum especially when it's wearing a lot of scale armor women do serve in the uh, centaur army Mm. but they're horse archers effectively they're Mm. not 
they're not the close combat troops. Um, that's very much it's dictated by the body type more mm. than anything. I mean, a horse archer is a skirmisher. They're going to be chasing down broken and fleeing enemies because they're a lot faster. So they are going to fight up close and personal. The centaurs they are mainly on one continent. Mm. Uh, the the explanation, the in-world explanation I'm giving for that is they're bloody awful sailors. <laughs> I mean, have you ever tried to get a horse on a boat? It's... I don't want to. No, I, I would recommend don't. <laughs> what I like is that you don't just go, right, one continent, one type of people. You get felons in the centaur areas. And I, I think I like that there's that mixing because it makes it feel a bit yeah. more real. It, you know... <laughs> The, the avians, for example, they're on pretty much every continent. They fly <laughs> easy for them. Them and centaurs do not get on. Yes, um, there's another. There's another story which I, which might, if, with your permission, might be appearing on the podcast at some point. Is the the origin myth? Yeah. Um, to really, really boil it down, the centaurs, much like the Romans, used to keep slaves. They were mainly avians. The avians got out. They are not happy about this, even a hundred years later. Mm. Um, they, as a result, their culture has a very, very heavy, heavy emphasis on freedom and individual autonomy and stuff like that, which is kind of tied into the fact, you know, they fly, they like to be able to travel. Mm. One thing I do really want to write at some point, a duel between an avian and a centaur, just because I'll be sat there going... Oh God! How are the body mechanics meant to work? <laughs> they are—they're—they're they're nomadic um, yeah. within that world. They keep herds of wyvern that they follow around. Uh, of course, they need to be able to move around and graze those herds, which is one of the major points of conflict between them and the centaurs. It's largely the avians going. There's good grazing there, and the avian and the centaurs going. Oh fucking hell! Not again. <laughs> just imagine giant lizard cows descending from on high like oh, don't land here <laughs> it's just stripping the fields the poor farmers are just there going really just, really <laughs> I just imagine some poor little like the centaur shepherd like youngest one and he, and he goes back to tell everyone what's happened and they just don't believe him he's like no seriously giant cow lizards <laughs> Like, shut up, Tim, you're, you're doing the dishes tonight. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh. I'm going to have to take a note of that, make use of it. Yes! <laughs> I'm really massively impressed with this with this world you're building and the amount of dedication and, and, insi and historical insight going into it. So I really look forward to hearing more of it. I'll be honest, a lot of it is me just playing with the fact that I'm a bit of a history nerd and going, what bits can I cherry pick that are fun and can I smush them together and make something weird and entertaining? Oh, I quite like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, for how do I put this? It's like really, really high level finger painting. It's just basically viscerally <laughs> enjoyable. <laughs> what I tend to do in my writing is try and bring in the little details like little sensory details like at one point um i just mentioned the sort of byzantine crown which is a big heavy octag octagonal thing mm -hmm. don't try and walk around it'll probably fall off um, 
it's got these really long strings of pearls that hang down over the wearer's chest. And it's sort of mentioning that she can hear them clicking next to her ears because I'm trying to make the reader feel feel and what she's feeling. Mm-hmm. And sort of noticing like the the odd little details like um the scars in the door. Uh-huh. They're massively important to that culture's history because They've only had to do this four times before where the emperor's beating on the door of the cathedral. In this case, it's the empress, but that's not actually that important. You sometimes just notice when you're doing stuff, you just notice weird little details like a texture or a pattern or something like that in something Mm. or how something feels. And I I like to sort of put that in Mm -hmm. here and there because it does sort of draw the reader back to reality, even though it's not real if that makes sense it was those little touches that make it one of those things that i wanted to think about a bit more i'm trying to use those little details to just put the reader much more in the the character's hooves (laughs) yeah so fabulous (laughs) (laughs) well thank you thank you so much for speaking to me about this uh very well hopefully we'll be reading more of your stuff uh in the relatively near future Thank you very much. At, at, the, at this rate, I might actually need to write some more. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I will. I will be your deadline. <laughs> uh, thank you. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for listening. If you have a story you'd like us to read or a topic you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production.